Warning, the following episode contains spoilers. The Good Kush Podcast. The Good Kush Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode two of the Armchair Analyst series on the Good Kush Podcast. And what an entertaining few weeks it has been with the World Cup. We've had drama, we've had upsets and some standout performances. And the same can be said for what we're discussing today in our episode, Quick Flick Reviews. Joining me on the episode is none other than a self-proclaimed recent graduate of eight years in his now deleted LinkedIn bio with a love of everything movie related, whose hobbies include being a full-time simp for Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan. It's none other than my husband, Jawad. So for those of you who haven't listened to Hans Zimmer, you really should. And pretty much every single movie Christopher Nolan has ever made is worth watching. So you're absolutely right. If you're going to simp over someone, those two people can't think of anyone better. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jawad. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with the obvious question of why do you enjoy torturing me with your awful movie suggestions? Okay, so for people who don't know Kush, she refuses to watch anything popular for some reason. And it just so happens that a lot of good movies that are made become popular because they are good. I don't understand why you refuse to watch anything that a lot of people like. What do, what evidence do you have of this, please? IMDb ratings. No, what I've evidence do you have of me not watching popular things? Because I, I had to know. force you into watching everything. Oh, so you do you admit that you forced Inception. me into you watching stuff. Not forced. I gen- gently persuaded you. No, you, you didn't. You made a face, like no, a, a slapped ass until I watched those movies and you took me through hell and made me watch Interstellar. Inception, I'll admit, is actually a decent movie. Interstellar, decent. Is that no. one of the best movies ever made? Okay, that's debatable. But Interstellar, Interstellar, no. I don't know what kind of chokehold that movie has men in particular in but it is boring as hell and i know i'll get cooked for this but i don't care incredible storyline amazing storytelling brilliant soundtrack the acting was really really good fair enough there are one or two small complaints you can make about it but overall as a movie it's amazing i was struggling to stay awake through the thing so yeah that that kind of says it all for me really But anyway, on the theme of torturing each other, I have to admit, in fairness, some of the things that we watched together haven't been all too bad. So why don't we move on to discussing that instead, rather than fighting it out on air? Okay, fair enough. You don't seem impressed with that suggestion. You want to fight. You're in the mood to fight. We're going to end up fighting about this later on. Mm, Yeah, we'll see about that. All right then. So. I want to start with The Crown season five. So for anyone who has been living under a rock for the past, I want to say not seven years, about five years ago, Netflix released a series called The Crown. um, And it follows the story loosely or rather closely, depending on, on how you view it. The story of Queen Elizabeth II, how she came into becoming the Queen, um, and her journey so far, up until the current series, which is focusing on the 1990s. So the first four seasons, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I thought that they told the story really well, and I know that Netflix and members of the cast have always maintained that it's a drama, it's not intended to be 100% factually correct but where they do use actual facts they've done it really really well and they do back it up with bits of information kind of in the post um I want to say it's not post credits it's kind of in a little after scene at the end of the episode they'll just kind of go through some of the factual elements of the episode if they do contain them so season five is looking at the early to not mid exactly, but slightly after mid 90s. So there are a lot of things that were happening in the decade. A lot of them were personal to the Queen rather than some of the political themes that they have explored in some of the previous seasons. Overall, I have a mixed feeling about this. And I think, Jawad, you were pretty much the same as well. Having watched the previous four seasons and 
kind of understanding what those were about from a factual historical perspective and just even from a from a tv series watching perspective if you're not interested in like for example if you're just watching this as someone who's brand new to the to everything to do with the royal family and the queen i don't know i feel like there were some elements that were missing it felt slightly rushed how do you feel about it um so crown not usual not usually my typical show i think this is one that you got me into and i agree with you the first four seasons no everything was really good took me by surprise i quite enjoyed it and i was looking forward to season five and i think overall i probably found it boring you know this is the first time i've been watching a season of the crown and i was quite happy to pause an episode halfway through just go and do something else or leave it for like a day or two before coming back to finish it um it's you know there are definitely things that they've done right you know the acting the soundtrack some of the storylines maybe were decent enough to watch but otherwise it's a lot less engaging than it used to be it's a real shame because they've got some good actors in the cast list um but the casting itself i feel that they did a better job at least when you look at the actors in the first four seasons and they have done for this season um for example, I think the one that stands out the most and the one that I've seen online that most people are talking about is the actor that they casted for Prince Charles, who's Dominic West. And as an actor, he's really, really good. I think that he's captured some of the emotions really, really well of what Charles was going through at the time. But looks-wise, I'm not 100% convinced. He's he's too good-looking. It's not even that he's too good-looking, it's just... When I imagine Prince Charles back in the 90s, you know, someone very slim, this guy definitely has, you know, the guy who's playing him definitely spends a lot of time in the gym. It's completely different. And it's not just so much about how he looks, and the name escapes me, but the person who played Prince Charles in season four, you might remember his name. Josh O'Connor. He really nailed the voice as well as kind of looking like him. And that really helped hook you into the story. Whereas every time, this time Prince Charles came on in season five, it was a bit of a distraction because it didn't even sound like him that much. There were none of those mannerisms there. I think he got some of the physical mannerisms right though. Like, you know, the playing with the cufflinks and kind of having that stance. And, you know, I think he got that stuff right. But I get the voice thing. I get it. Um, I think with Josh O'Connor, who you were talking about from season three and season four, he did an amazing job. But I think a part of feeling that way about him is because he also looked a lot like the young Prince Charles. And I feel like in a series like this, where it's kind of biographical, not kind of, it is biographical, you need to pay close attention to those things and the continuity of it all. I mean, mm. I have to admit, when Claire Foy was playing the Queen in the first season, I wasn't sure what to expect. Um, and I ended up loving her by the end of it. And then when they announced Olivia Coleman, I was like, oh, I'm not entirely sure. Like, I think Olivia Coleman's a fantastic actress, by the way. I think she's amazing. Um, and she's definitely got range and she's done roles before that are similar to this. But I still wasn't entirely sure. And then I ended up seeing her and she was very, very good. And there was this continuity of the personality between Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman. And I think the transition between Olivia Coleman and Imelda Staunton, again, another fantastic actress, I think Imelda Staunton might have been almost a little bit too cold as the Queen. To be fair, you don't really see her that much. I feel like season five is just purely focused well, most of the time just around Charles and Diana. I don't think, like the earlier seasons, she had a chance or was that prominent enough to kind of stretch and give a wider performance, apart from, you know, just kind of being there, like the nagging mother in a way, giving speeches all the time. Yeah, but I do, I do feel like if the entire premise of the series is based upon whose head the crown is on, 
then there should be a little bit of focus on that. But maybe they're just trying to be a bit more true to life and the transition was quite stark, perhaps. I mean, they mentioned it, I think it might have been in the first or second episode, that the first part of the series is focused on, you know, some of the troubles that the royal family was going through. The royal children ended up divorced, pretty much. So Anne, Charles and Andrew, they all ended up divorced in 1992. It was a really bad year. There was the fire at Windsor Castle. And perhaps that did, in real life, make her become a little bit more stony. Maybe, but whilst you were just kind of, I guess, explaining some of the episodes in season five, I think that's part of the problem. A lot of that stuff was quite boring. Like, seeing the episode about the fire at Windsor Castle, I can't even, I'm trying to remember, I can't even remember what it was about. I just have one picture in my head of the Queen looking at the castle on fire, and that's about it. Yeah. And that these random storylines, like, oh, they have the royal yacht, and they want, it's breaking down, so they want people to pay for it. It's like, that was boring. And then they've got Prince Philip, who randomly gets into carriage driving, that was boring and made no sense. And like, fair enough, okay, obviously you might have done it in real life. But if you're trying to watch an episode about something, that wasn't interesting at all. And then I think they spent most of the time on the Charles and Dana stuff, which, fair enough, it was a huge thing to happen mm -hmm. in the 90s for the royal family. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in there to kind of dig into. But I think one of the problems that they're going to hit now that we've seen in season five and probably going forwards a lot of people that are watching The Crown now, this is coming into memories that they've had since when they were younger or stuff that they know about. So they already have their own ID ideas or preconceived notions about it. And it makes it less fresh and engaging. Because like, I remember when I watched the first one or two seasons, I had no idea some of that stuff happened to the Queen. It was interesting to watch and I wanted to keep on watching it to see what happens. But now it's like, you know, I already know it's going to kind of come. And whilst it's interesting to see, you know, like, um, what's his name? That BBC reporter. Martin Bashir. That's the one. Like, whilst it was interesting to kind of see that take place, at the same time, I've read so much of that over the news articles over the last few years that you kind of knew what was going to happen. But then that could be said for the the rest of the seasons as well if you're into your history you'd know most of that stuff happened because no, it's no, not fair, just fair royal point, family it's also for political me, and i think a lot of other people how many people honestly sit down and read up on the history of the monarchy i doubt most people do i think most people go into the crown they saw it with a pair of fresh eyes understood the royal family but now that it's coming down to stuff that they might know it's like Eh, you know, it's less interesting. And I don't know what they can do to fix it, because it's... And I think we had this discussion before. Prince Charles in seasons three and four, he's kind of portrayed as a bit of a whiny child, almost. And in season five, I don't know how many a gap there was in years, it's almost like his personality's changed. Like, you know, they're showing him as a monarch ready and waiting. But that is the case, though. And I think it's been known for a while, or at least it was talked about as well, that he was kind of itching to get his hands on the crown. Um, and I know it's been a running joke, and I remember quite distinctly uh, watching an episode of uh, Mock the Week, it was, and they had run a joke about uh, Queen Elizabeth saying to Prince Charles that she, he would have to prize the crown out of her cold, dead hands. So it's not something that was completely unknown. I think people have been aware of it. And I think that when you're in a situation like that yourself, you're hyper aware of what your responsibilities are and the eventuality of what your life is going to amount to, which is wearing the crown, essentially, which is what has happened now. Like he's kind of gone into that role um, after probably waiting for a lot longer than he was expecting. So I think that they've tried to portray him in a positive light through this to try and maybe get rid of some of the negative criticism that was put to them when they actually started making this series in the first place. And I don't think it's going to get rid of it completely, to be honest. 
but maybe some of it is damage control on their part. Maybe. But speaking of, um, I guess, episodes that I'd like, I do like how they introduced Muhammad Al-Fayed. And Dodi Al-Fayed, like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that was really good. And can I just say, I didn't realise how much the Queen treated him dirty. So I guess for people who haven't seen The Crown yet, and, you know, slight spoilers ahead, he basically kind of likes the royal family. He wants to be that kind of person in high society. And his butler used to be, I think, is it King? Which king was it? It was King George. No, not King George. King, king George's Ed brother, wasn't it? Was it King Edward? No. Maybe King Edward. He used to be basically King Edward's old butler. Basically, the butler. Queen's uncle's butler when he was king. Yeah. And that episode was really interesting to see him try and learn what, how they act, how they behave, how they dress, what they do. And he basically buys this France chalet that the old king used to live in, redoes the whole thing just in a way to try and impress the queen so she'll come over and like pay a visit and see what it was like. And then she doesn't even come. She just sends some of her people to take stuff that the king left behind and then they just drive off. And it's like, he must have put in so much effort and money restoring that place just to not even get a chance to meet her? I mean, given some of the recent news stories that have come out, are you really that surprised that they would discriminate and act horribly against someone like that? Because I'm I'm not entirely surprised, Yeah. in all fairness. But moving on from this series, um, season six is going to be looking at the inevitable in Diana's death. They're also going to be focusing a bit more on Tony Blair, and we're going to see the introduction of William, Kate, and Harry. Like, Can I just say before you move on? Yeah. That whoever they had brought in to play Tony Blair in season five, Bertie Carvel. it does not look like him at all. Bertie Carvel, I think his name is. It does not. No. Like, the voice is amazing. Yeah. The voice is spot on. Yeah, I agree. Does not look like him. No, but I think with some of the other ones, they did do a really good job. So they had John Lithgow playing Churchill, um, which is always absolutely fascinating to see how an American plays Churchill so well. Um, Margaret Thatcher, of course, was played by Gillian Anderson, and she did an absolutely brilliant job um, in doing so as well. And I think the person that they had playing Anthony Eden um, also looked the part, looked ridiculously mm, like him. Uh, but I hope that they do explore more of the political side of things, because I did enjoy watching and learning about things through this. So um, I wasn't aware of the Aberfan disaster and watching that episode, like it just makes you understand why people have a kind of, I guess, view that the monarchy doesn't care about regular people or its subjects. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's just that thing. I think there's lots of things that contribute to that view, but just seeing that um, it felt quite raw watching it. Um, and, you know, they also included the sanctions on South Africa in, I think it was season four or season three, one of them. It was basically Thatcher refusing to put sanctions on South Africa and that back and forth between her and the Queen regarding this. I'm not sure how much truth there is in the back and forth, but yeah, it is well known that she did refuse to put those sanctions on South Africa. So. It'll be interesting to see how they balance the political side of things, because there are so many things. If they're going to go as far as introducing Kate into the equation, that means that, you know, that will cover the period of the Iraq war. It will cover the period of 9-11 and all of these other kind of uh, political um, events in between. And it might, might even cover 7-7. Uh, which is much closer to home. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they portray these things if they do decide to include them. Uh, but in terms of how we'd overall just kind of rate this series then, for reference, on IMDb, season five of The Crown got 8.7 out of 10. What? And on Rotten Tomatoes, it got 86%, which I'm quite surprised about, I have to admit. That's ridiculously high. Yeah. I was going to give it a six. A six. And just as a standalone or compared to the others or just overall with both of those factors? Compared to the others. And I think even standalone, I could only edge it up a tiny bit. Because I think the problem is, for me, 
I kind of know where things are going now. So whilst it's entertaining in some aspects, when I see something unknown, other times, you know, it's just getting a bit, I don't want to say boring, but when I was happy to pause an episode and come back to it two days later, you know, that's not exactly something that's got you hooked. Yeah. I mean, I'd agree with that. I think I'd give it maybe, I'd bump it to a seven. I'd bump it to a seven because I do recognize they had some sensitive things to talk about and they probably did have their hands tied a bit, but you know, there were a couple of places where I did like what they did. Like you said, the episodes where they introduced Muhammad and Dodie Al fired were quite good. Um, and also I did like that they included um, Diana's relationship with Dr. Hasnath Khan, uh, played by our very own uh, Pakistani superstar, Humayun Saeed. So I think- I'll be honest, this is the first time I've seen or heard of him. Yeah, but you're also like, oh, I'm not even going to go into it. Coconut? No. I, I prefer the term bounty. Um, I didn't say either of those things, you're saying them, so please <laughs> don't put words or uh, food objects into my mouth when I'm not talking about them. Anyway, on that note, uh, something else that was absolutely everywhere in the past kind of month or so. I saw adver advertisements for this everywhere. I was getting hounded on YouTube. I was seeing it on Amazon. I was seeing it on the sides of buses. I was seeing it at bus stops, billboards everywhere. And that series is The Devil's Hour, which is on Amazon Prime. It's one of their original series. And the premise of the story is that a woman called Lucy, she wakes up uh, at 3.33 a.m. every morning with these kind of nightmares and deja vu type dreams. Um, and for anyone who's not aware, the devil's hour is said to be between 3 and 4 a.m. So that's why the show is called The Devil's Hour. I was a bit worried to watch this because I'm an absolute wimp and I hate series with jump scares and the trailer looked quite decent and I saw that Peter Capaldi was in it and I absolutely love him. But the issue is, is whenever I see him in my head, all I can hear is the voice of Malcolm Tucker from The Thick of It. And if you haven't watched The Thick of It and you like politics, you like comedy and, you know, you just want to laugh, absolutely 100% guarantee like you will laugh when you watch this. So go and watch The Thick of It. I don't know who shows it anymore, but it's an amazing series. Anyway, that was a bit of a side note and I've sidetracked a bit. I saw the trailer and I was like, okay, this looks like something I could be interested in, but potentially something that could scare the absolute life out of me because I'm just such a wimp. But I'm glad I watched it. I'm really glad I watched it because whilst the actual storyline is a bit confusing, I think that confusion kind of adds to the appeal of the series. So they play with time a little bit. So it's like I mentioned, a bit of deja vu element there, but it's also kind of reliving your life on a continuous loop with the ability to change what happens in each of those lifetimes by taking an action, for example, that will stop whatever you saw in your previous life from happening in this life. So I think there was a movie that had a similar kind of concept butterfly effect was it butterfly effect or vantage was it not I th vantage point? i think the whole point of the butterfly effect was you kind of changed like, i haven't watched i've only heard about it yeah but you change something and then it kind of changes the future it could be something really insignificant but it's i don't i haven't actually watched the butterfly effect but i'm not sure that it has the you know you see what happens and then you can go and change it element okay minority report uh, I don't think it was That's kind of it. Like, I don't know if you've watched Minority Report. No. It's got those three people who can somehow see the future and they alert the police of upcoming crimes. So the police, they might see someone getting murdered and they'll go and arrest you before the murder happened and then put you in prison for a murder you haven't technically committed. That sounds awful. Yeah, it was interesting. It was quite a good movie. But I mean, I guess that element is also here as well. So the whole point is, is that... Peter Capaldi's character, Gideon, is essentially trying to explain to the female lead, Lucy, that because he sees everything in each of his lifetimes, he's trying to prevent bad things from happening. And it starts with his own family. He ends up, it starts with him noticing that he has this 
kind of I don't know if you could call it power or what you would call it but it starts off with this kind of oh I was get, gonna get told off for playing with a pine cone after church and so he in his next life he doesn't play with the pine cone and then he notices that he doesn't get told off by his dad so and I think told off is probably a very mild way of putting it I'm pretty sure his dad beat him with a belt but he continues this and then he sees that his dad is going to kill him and his brother by driving them off a cliff and committing suicide because the mum's had an affair with someone. So in order to prevent that, he stabs his own dad to death. Which, to be honest, seems a bit extreme to me. Like, he could have just woken his... So basically, during that night, he goes and grabs a knife and stabs his dad. One, bit of a jump. Fair enough, you might have a hard time convincing someone else but his little brother seemed to trust him. So he could have just taken his brother, they could have gone for a walk, gone and headed somewhere. That wouldn't have happened. I don't think that he would have been thinking logically if he's jumped to that well, step. He's had, like, how many lifetimes of repeating that to think logically? He's a kid. Yeah, but you can think about other things than murder. That's quite a big jump. I mean, I don't know. You can take that up with him if you want to speak to him about it, but... How this fits into the very beginning of the series. So at the beginning of the series, we follow Lucy, like I've mentioned, who has a young son called Isaac. And Isaac is different. And it's very apparent from the first episode that he's different. He's very quiet, withdrawn. He kind of talks to himself. He mumbles. And he has some weird behaviours and she's taking him to a child psychologist to see if anything can be done to help him, if there's anything that she can do or they can do or, you know, if he might have, um, you know, ADHD or autism or something like that. And in the midst of it, you find out that Lucy's actually recently separated from the father of the child, um, a man called Mike. And throughout the series, this man... I absolutely ended up hating his character, which I think speaks volumes about his acting ability because he's just fallen into the role so well that you have no choice but to absolutely hate him for how horrible he is to the kid. Anyway. No, no, agreed. And it was a really stand-up performance because, you know, he is clearly struggling with wanting to get back with Lucy because it's almost like they're kind of separated now. Because and of the child. Right. Yeah, because of the child. And he tries to engage with... Um, what's the kid's name again? Isaac. Isaac. Yeah. And he's trying to engage with Isaac, but Isaac, because he's so different, you know, he doesn't respond, doesn't laugh to jokes or anything. And you just see him practically, you know, torturing the kid in a way, like trying to get a reaction out of him. And, you know, the kid played Isaac, brilliant job. The dad did amazing acting. And I feel like I have to point this out. He has a really, really good physique, especially his like butt. Like it's clear, whoever he is, what? he goes to the gym a lot. What on earth? What does this have to do with the general storyline and and rating it's it? It's um, I'm discussing the actors and their ability to to what to the have audience's a butt. attention. Well, if anyone's interested, the person who played the dad is called Phil Dunster. And yes, I do agree Definitely with what you said. But the point is, is that let's continue with the rest of the story. So they're trying to find out what's happened with Isaac. The mum's waking up at 3.33 a.m. with these weird nightmares, deja vu. She keeps seeing visions of her mum and her mum with like a gun, like about to kill herself. And it kind of has flashbacks to her childhood. And when she wakes up, her mum's actually in... Um, I think a care home. She has maybe dementia or Alzheimer's or something. And so she's in a care home and she's very much alive. And what follows in the next few episodes, because I don't want to give everything away because I think that that's too much, is... But you've kind of, we've kind of given away the biggest thing. No, but here's the thing. Like, there's stuff in between that will happen and I don't want to go through every single episode because we're not doing, you know, an overall synopsis of every episode. We're going through what we liked and what we didn't. So... The course of the first series, six episodes in total, follows how um, Gideon tracks down Lucy because in one of his previous lives, he's seen that Lucy 
and another police officer called Ravi have prevented him from stopping someone from becoming, I think, as a sex offender or a rapist. And so in order to get her to him, he does it by taking her child and altering the course of what would have happened. So they do finally meet at the end, but there are flashes of it throughout the series and it makes everything quite confusing, which I think is the good thing about this series is that you're always thinking like, what is going on? What's going to happen next? Why is it all happening? It keeps you gripped. And that's what I really did like about this uh, series. See, I, I didn't get that impression at all. What? That I didn't like it? No, no, that it kept me gripped. I don't know because... why you're... Why are your standards so high? Like, what did you want them to do? Like, jump out the screen and literally no, like, shake like, you or something? The way that they've done it is you kind of go into each episode and it has its own mini storyline or crime that you see and could potentially prevent in a way. And then by the end of the episode, it's almost resolved. And it's like, okay, great. And whilst I understand there's meant to be this hook running throughout about trying to see what's actually going on, explaining the whole time loop or whatever it is. They, I don't think they pull it off for me. So for me, I never felt like some other series where I was absolutely hooked between one episode to the next. There wasn't any kind of urgency or danger or risk that the characters were facing most of the time that made me want to keep going. I don't agree with that at all. Like, I wanted to keep watching it, and I'm pretty sure that you wanted to keep watching it as well. It wasn't as bad as The Crown, let's be honest. No, it was slightly better than The Crown. I think it was really good. Um, and <laughs> I don't think you're going to be very happy, because on IMDb, it got 7.7 .7 out of 10. On Rotten mm -hmm. Tomatoes, however, it got 100%. Okay, but... okay. It's higher than I would have given it, I'll be honest. Yeah. I would have given it like a seven. See, I would have given it like at least an eight and a half. That is quite high. Yeah, because I think that the acting performances were really good. Um, the only thing I'd say is maybe Jessica Rain, who played Lucy, I think that she could have had a little bit more emotion. Um, but other than that, hmm. Benjamin Shivers, who played Isaac, Peter Capaldi, who played Gideon... Phil Dunster, who played Mike, um, they all did really amazing jobs in their roles. And I think with Peter Capaldi especially, he was absolutely terrifying without being your typical terrifying villain. But he's See, also this I, kind of like anti-hero. I, I don't know. I think with uh, Peter Capaldi, I think he did a good job. But I almost wish he had brought some more energy to his character. Because now that I've seen him as playing Malcolm in the thick of it, you know, he's very energetic, he's going around swearing, he has a presence. In this, I didn't quite get that all the time. But that was part and of his character, fair enough, though. It might come in later seasons, because apparently they are making a second and a third season, and the storylines are all going to be intertwined and kind of looking at the past, present, and future. So, I don't know, maybe at the end of all of this, I might look back on this more favourably because the storyline, you know, it's way better than I was expecting and they're building up things that I can't even imagine right now. But for me right now, it's just, it's probably not something I'm going to go back and rewatch. But to be honest, there aren't many series that I've gone back and rewatched. Um, really? And I don't mind that. Yeah, because I still remember them favorably in my own head. Um, I don't have to rewatch them to absolutely love them. Having said that, The Crown... <laughs> I'm coming back to The Crown. The Crown is one series that I have watched repeats of, but it's certain episodes that I like watching rather than the whole series. Um, no, no, fair enough. Like, if I, this, like, I've really enjoyed Breaking Bad and Lost, for example, it's at times on YouTube, I'll watch a couple of clips from those things that I enjoyed. Yeah. But with this, I don't... Like, they, obviously, I feel like I'm just hating on it too much. They have done stuff well, good. They definitely knew when she's waking up at 3.33 a.m., having these visions or whatever it was, they definitely know how to build up an atmosphere and make it a bit spooky. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like they 
can could have done better with trying to create more urgency between one episode and the next. Hmm. I don't know. I actually quite liked it and I think it was moving at the right pace and I think that they've purposely kept elements out of it or they've not built it up as much as perhaps some viewers would have wanted them to purely so that they've got stuff for season two and season three and I'm quite interested to see now that we know exactly why all of it's happening how they're going to keep the viewers gripped for season three uh, season two sorry mm. um okay so you would you said you were rating it a seven i would give it a seven like maximum seven maximum for seven no flex no flexing and what would you say to the people who rated it 100 percent on rotten tomatoes well, is Rotten Tomatoes, I'm trying to remember, because I know with IMDb you're giving a movie a rating out of 10. Is Rotten Tomatoes giving it a rating out of 100 or saying how unique it is? Because there's a difference between the two. I think it's a rating out of 100. Exactly. I think it's a rating out of 100, perhaps. I mean, I guess we can look it up later on. Um, but I know that when I'm looking at which movies to watch or which series to watch, um, I'll usually have a look at the Rotten Tomatoes score rather than IMDb because I feel like it's a bit more real and some of the reviews make more sense, although review bombing is a thing. Um, speaking of high Rotten Tomatoes score, Glass Onion, a Knives Ooh. Out mystery. And that's quite a reaction, Joad. I love this. So for those of you who haven't come across Knives Out, Knives Out uh, was a... One, definitely just go and watch it right now. Okay. Like, pause the podcast, go and watch it, and then come back. Have you been paid to say this? No, but it's such a good movie that people need to. This is quite an emphatic endorsement, although I do agree with you. I think. Like, if you don't happen to have a copy of it's not on streaming right now, come over to our flat. <laughs> Please don't do this. Please don't turn over our flat. You'll be turned away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Knives Out is kind of like a whodunit, like a dark comedy whodunit. And the main character is a detective called Benoit Blanc, who is played by Daniel Craig. In the first movie, you're figuring out who killed the old patriarch of a family. Um, the man ends up being a murder mystery author, which just kind of adds to it all. Um, and in the second one, it's like a completely different cast, completely different storyline. But Benoit Blanc, uh, Daniel Craig's character, is still the main kind of lead in it as a detective. So the story starts... And I think, sorry, just one thing to point out when you're talking about Knives Out. It's not your typical murder mystery. It's not like, oh, I'm just trying to figure out who did the murder. They put a twist on it and it was a very... I'm not going to give it away just in case someone hasn't watched it. It had twists, it had turns, it was a very unique take we're on just, a murder mystery itself. We're about to give itself. them spoilers for Glass Onion and you're telling me that... Oh. Okay, well, go and watch Knives Out because we haven't given spoilers for that. Yeah. And then they can wait to watch Glass Onion. Which will be on Netflix, I believe. On the 23rd of December. Wow. I know what we're spending our Christmas doing then. Perfect thing for the family. Okay, maybe not... Okay, if you're Asian... Maybe don't watch it with your parents in the room. But apart from that, definitely do. So for starters, you know what? Before I even get into the storyline of Glass Onion, I just want to start with how the trailer did it zero justice at all. Jawad, you showed me the trailer and I think I turned to you. We both turned to each other and we were like, uh... And at this point, I'd like to say that we had booked um, VIP tickets at Cineworld. So... If you've not come across this, uh, all over TikTok, I saw people going to their local Cineworld and they've got like a special VIP screen. And what you do is, I think it's like £35 a ticket. You go in, you have like a buffet beforehand, and then you end up being able to take as many snacks and drinks and whatever as you want. It's all included in the ticket into the screen itself. And they have really comfortable big seats and little tables where you can put your snacks and drinks and everything. And it's quite a nice... And someone comes and like gives you a foot rub whilst you watch it. You have an iPad. You can just order more food. Yeah, this is not... No, no, we're not doing this. This is... Personally, Whatever the cast he's saying and director is a lie. will come out at the end of the movie and thank you for watching You're it. You're not supposed to tell people about your fantasies of meeting Christopher Nolan this way. Please refrain. Mm. 
Anyway, so getting back to it, we had booked it for that VIP experience. And after watching the trailer, we turned to each other and we just did a nervous laugh because we didn't know what to expect. And we were like, oh dear, we might have made a big mistake. And then about a week later, we were told that the VIP experience wasn't really going to end up going ahead as planned. Um, so I think there must have been a kind of on balance of cost issue. Uh, no, basically, because you get a buffet beforehand, they didn't have enough items on the buffet. So they were like, we're just going to refund everyone. If you want to come and see it, you have to book your ticket again. Yeah, but I think it was probably down to like the cost versus the benefit of it. Like, were there enough people to justify doing all of that? Because they're not likely to do it if there's only like two people showing up, right? So No, but even, bef even after we just booked the tickets, they started sending that email about the buffet. Oh, I didn't know that. And this was like weeks before that it was out and they knew how many tickets would be sold. You never told me they were sending emails about the buffet. Yeah, I did. No, you told me when they cancelled it. Oh, no, but they did send one pretty much straight away after I booked it. Hmm. That's not very good, is it? But anyway, point is, is that we ended up watching it um, elsewhere. And I'm so glad that we went because... I was really dreading it. I was thinking, oh God, they've done something really good for the original Knives Out and now they're trying to like ride off the success of that and it's just going to be really awful based on the trailer, based on the trailer alone. Um, but it was a completely different storyline um, and it had its own good points um, that really made it stand out. So... Similarly to the first Knives Out, this one's got a really good cast of people behind it as well. So you've got the main, the other main male lead, Miles, being played by Edward Norton. You've got a character called Birdie, who's played by Kate Hudson. Uh, Duke is played by Batista. You've got Janelle Monet, who is in a double role. Um, and then you've got some really cool cameos. So Hugh Grant makes a cameo, which is absolutely hilarious. And Serena Williams also does, amongst lots of other people. Um, and a fun fact, the voice of the clock on the Greek island is actually voiced by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Really? Yeah. That's so random. Yeah, it's so random, right? But I love it. And you know what? I think this is just like the director being quite funny with how he puts his own twist on it. Because there was even somewhere I read that Initially, when they had signed the additional movies for Knives Out, they were going to have Daniel Craig do a different accent for each movie as like a running joke. And then they decided against it, which is a real shame because I remember when I heard his accent in the first movie, I was thinking, what the hell is this? It sounded so bad. And then in this movie, I really liked it. He had continued it and like it kind of grows on you, I think. Were you going to say anything? No, I, just I was nodding. actually giving, I was just giving way for you to okay. add your own two cents because I feel like I'm talking about it a lot and you've not said much and you are really fanboying over this. No, I mean, I'm trying to figure out how much I can give away without going in spoiler territory, but at a we've high level... We've just spoiled everything that we've spoken about so far. No, we haven't. Um, and I've put a warning high, at the beginning. At a high level, Benoit gets invited to this island by Edward Norton and the pl he's basically an eccentric billionaire. He's going to do this elaborate murder mystery over the weekend, and whoever wins, I don't know, gets a prize or whatever. But then someone actually ends up dying, and it's up to Benoit to figure out what happened. And that by itself, you know, a decent storyline. But then just the way that all the characters end up having their own motivation to want that person dead how they slowly build on that and how, you know, there's so many twists and so many reveals. It's just brilliantly done. And, you know, I think you mentioned that you didn't know how they could beat the original one. Mm -hmm. I thought exactly the same thing. And if not beating it, definitely equaling it and how good a movie it is. Yeah, I, I don't think I can add anything else to that, to be honest. They've really outdone themselves and I think that they did a brilliant job. And even just like the setting of it all, like the the kind of thought that went into all the small details and, you know, I do really like it. I like the style of movie and I'm really looking forward to the next one that they're doing. So I think they have, they'd signed two additional movies, I think, after Netflix signed over the rights from the original owners. So one is this one. I think they've got another one that's coming out. I'm not sure when. 
Um, but I do believe that Daniel Craig is reprising the role of Benoit Blanc, which is amazing news because I think he does the role really, really well. I think after seeing him for so many years in um, as James, James Bond. Bond, yeah, as James Bond, like one almost would think that he was typecast a little bit into that kind of brawny. And he like, seems to be enjoying steely. this a lot more as well. Yeah, he looks so much more alive. Hmm. I think it might be because he can bring a bit more of his own personality to it. I think with James Bond, you have to forego a lot of your own little quirks. Yeah, and down here you have a bit role. more freedom. And yeah. it's, it's, so much, it's such much more of a fun movie anyway, mm-hmm. compared to your typical James Bond thing. It's not as serious. Oh, no, definitely not. And I don't think it's intended to be serious either, even though the comedy can be quite dark at times. But I... I think with James Bond, you can go one of two ways. You're either the very steely, stoic, emotionless kind of brute, or you're that kind of suave and handsome and sexy kind of spy. There's no in-between. There's no average. There's no. It's like one extreme or the other. And it's difficult to choose. And that doesn't mean that Daniel Craig wasn't appealing in his role. Or that people didn't find him attractive or or suave or whatever. It's just that I feel like he fell towards the other side of the spectrum more, especially towards the end. Like you could really see that he was so done with it all. Mm. But it was nice and refreshing to see him in this role and just do something different. So in terms of the ratings that they had on IMDb for this then, IMDb... If it's anything less than a 9 or 10, we should be very offended. It's 8 out of 10. <gasps> And on Rotten Tomatoes, it's 93%. How dare they? (laughs) What would you give it? Was there even any point in me asking? No, no, there is a point, because... I don't know, I feel like it's almost a victim of Knives Out also being such a good movie. And it's not a complaint I can say against the film itself, because if I had to think... I honestly can't think of any way to improve it. Like, I really enjoyed it. I'm definitely going to rewatch it again. But when I saw the first Knives Out, it was like a breath of fresh air because it took your typical murder mystery and completely turned it on its head. And with Knives Out, Glass Onion, they've done that again. But because it's the second time you're seeing it now, you're not getting that same experience. So whilst it's like close, it's not that unique thing in a way. Um... So for me, they're both equal, in a way, to each other. Um, so I'd probably give it like a 9 out of 10. But then I feel bad giving it just a 9, because I can't think of any way to strictly improve it myself. Okay. I mean, very simply, I'll just give it a 9.5 out of 10. I think maybe the shine of the original Knives Out uh, hasn't been completely lost yet. But I do think they've done an absolutely brilliant job with this and i would recommend you guys to go and see it um if you don't catch it in the cinema it is going to be released on netflix when it it'll be out on the 23rd of december in time for christmas um okay so juad that brings us to the end of our episode actually how have you found it uh good i hope people find it useful and they'll definitely go and watch knives at tea Okay, and just to reiterate, he's not being paid to say this, he's saying it for free. And if you don't happen to have a Netflix account, feel free to come over to our flat and watch it here. No, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, But in all seriousness, Jawad, thank you for coming on and talking very passionately about some of the things that we've watched recently. Do you think you're going to come back on? Oh yeah, definitely. Hmm. I mean, it really wasn't that much effort, we live in the same place. I I don't know what to say to that, really. I feel like that's more of a, I had no choice because we live together and I don't want to annoy you. I I did enjoy it. You sound like you've had a gun held to your head. Just to clarify, guys, I'm in a completely separate room to him, so there's no way this could possibly happen. She's pointing the gun through the wall. I I can see it in her webcam. I, I don't have my webcam on. But if I told them what I'm seeing on my webcam, 
which is you just laughing manically because you're trying to put me in it. Yep, there we go. He's muted himself, so you can't even hear him laughing. But I can see him laughing, guys. I can see him laughing. Hmm, maybe we'll do a forward look. How about that? I think, yeah, looking forward to 2023. Because there are some good movies coming out. There are some good movies. I keep seeing trailers for Babylon, for example, so that's definitely on the list. And maybe we could do like a year in review of the good and the bad mm -hmm. for Sounds 2022. Good, All right, let's, let's do it. As always, Jawad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, even though you claimed there wasn't really any effort at all. I do appreciate your input on things, as always. Um, and if you guys listening would like to join in the convo as well, you can do if you head on over to Twitter and you can tweet us at the Good Kush Pod. But now I'm going to turn my attention to you guys. For next week's episode, I'm going to be discussing the thisy wedding industry and in particular some of the horrible experiences uh, I've had and some of the people that I know have had. Um, it's quite a hot topic at the moment and you know, I think we need to have a discussion about some of the good practices and some of the really awful practices that take place within the Asian wedding industry, in particular in the UK. Um, I know that a lot of you will be wedding planning at the moment for your summer weddings. Um, that's when the wedding season tends to happen in the UK. So I want to hear from you. If you've already gotten married and you've had some horrible experiences, what have those been? Um, and what can we learn from them really? And how can you as a bride or groom keep your wits about you so that what should be the happiest time of your life really does live up to that and you're not going through additional stress, you're not upset, you're not feeling like you can't be happy. Because the truth is, is that so many people have had horrible experiences that were absolutely needless. And for what? They've ended up ruining their wedding days, they've not had the time of their lives that they should have done. And we really need to address those issues. So if you have something to contribute, head on over to Reddit. Our subreddit is r slash the good kush podcast, where we've set up a thread Feel free to post your stories. Everything will be anonymous. If you want to DM them to us on Twitter, you can do that. Again, our handle is at the Good Kush Pod. But until next time, take care and I'll be with you next week with another episode of the Good Kush Podcast. Like, share, and subscribe. And subscribe. The Good Kush Podcast. A little bit of everything. 